Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with University of Illinois Extension in Macomb, Illinois. And we have got one heck of a show for you today, folks. It is packed full of uh, good things to know about storing your vegetables over the winter. And you know I can't do this by myself. I am joined, as always, by our faithful hosts here. We are joined first by Katie Parker in Adams County. Hello, Katie. Hello, Chris. Well, Katie, how are you doing today on this, uh, what is it, a rainy day actually here? Yeah, definitely. We uh, definitely need the rain. It was a nice surprise this morning, so it's a good day. How about you? I'm happy to see the rain. We uh, have some some native prairie plants that we need to get in the ground, but the ground is as hard as concrete, so we've sort of just been keeping them alive in pots for right now. But now there's a little moisture in the ground. Maybe we'll be able to do a little digging. It's been a gentle rain today, so that's been nice. Yeah, and we have some nice uh, almost fall-like weather, so it'll be perfect planting. Exactly. I can't wait to get my hands dirty again. And, of course, we have our other host today, Ken Johnson, horticulture educator in Jacksonville, Illinois. Hello, Ken. Hello, Chris and Katie. We've also been enjoying the rain here in Jacksonville. We got to... Go outside, splash in some puddles. It's pretty amazing how when you go for, it's been maybe almost three weeks without rain here in Macomb, how much you enjoy that first rain that when it comes back. Yes, yeah, it, was, it was definitely nice to have. And here it's been nice, that nice gentle soaking rain. So hopefully everything starts perking back up again here. Yes, exactly. And today we are going to be talking about storing produce for over the winter. If you might remember last week, we were talking with Jamie Balsad about storing seeds, but what about if you want to eat that stuff that you grew this year? Well, we have a special guest with us today returning to the Good Growing Podcast. We have Bruce Black, horticulture educator. Hello, Bruce. Hello, everybody. Well, Bruce, are you still calling in from home up in Northern Illinois? Are you back in the office these days? I am. I'm still calling in from home, um, but I'm working one of those hybrid schedules, so I'm occasionally in the office, um, at least once a week, and doing some programming, and I just want to say I am so glad to be here today, and I'm a little jealous because we have not got the rain yet up in Dixon in northwest Illinois, but we are supposed to get some thunderstorms in about an hour, so I'm excited. Uh, the energy is in the air around Bruce. That's that's always fun, the, the excitement that builds with thunderstorms. Most definitely. Gives, you, gives a good uh, release for all those stresses throughout the day with e-learning. Oh to just my. relax in a thunderstorm. Oh, that's, yes, yes. Listen to the rain, the thunder, and forget about e-learning for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you, yeah. And so, Bruce... You're gonna you're gonna guide us through this topic today of storing our vegetables over the winter. So all right, let's just let's just start out right now about like what do we need when we store vegetables? Where um, I have a basement, does that work? You know, I, my parents or my grandparents would always talk about putting things in the root cellar. What what do I need to do? So. This is a very good question, and it's one that I get a lot um, when I do vegetable programs and um, questions that I get from homeowners. Um, So the easy answer is, is that we do not need any kind of root cellar or we don't have to build a commercial enclosed food storage shelter. We don't have to have a controlled climate building. We can use our refrigerator, our freezer, and our stove to do a little bit of the prep work if we're going to be doing pressure cooking or jarring. And the easiest thing that I love is sometimes when you have those winter melons and squashes, you can, once they've cured, store those in your basement if it gets cool enough. So I just moved last year into a house that has an unfinished basement, and it stays really cool down there. So if I have any melons this fall, 
I'm going to put them down in the basement and store them a little bit. But otherwise, with having a family of five, as I know, uh, Chris, you've got one as well, I don't have as much fresh produce left over at the end of the season this year as I did when I was a single person. So this might be the year for me that I don't do a lot of uh, post-harvest handling um, besides maybe some tomatoes. So I'm excited for that. Yeah, Bruce, we're right there with you. We're, we uh, we kind of eat everything as we go and we uh, leftovers can be scarce even in our household these days because, well, frankly, we're, we're eating almost every meal at home and we're cooking our three square meals a day. And then, of course, with the kids, you know, all the snacks in between. Oh, of course. I'm with you same way. And it is one of those things that I love it because it cuts down on our food waste. And that's one of the things that I've always tried to work and educate people on is the amount of food waste that we typically do produce and some strategies on how to utilize more of that waste so that we're actually cutting down with the amount of food that we're throwing away. Now, I will say I am guilty of throwing away some cucumbers that I forgot I bought last week, um, and they got a little gray mold on them. So even I am guilty of having that little bit of food waste. We actually threw away a cucumber. We let it go a little too far on the vine this year. And, uh, yeah, that, that wasn't very palatable. <laughs> Did it get a little bitter? Uh, oh, yeah. Let's let's say very bitter. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mixing with the compost, though. Uh, true. Though, if you don't get it hot enough, you're going to have cucumbers growing out of your compost pile. Those mystery plants can be fun, though. I'll start sending mine to you then, Ken. <laughs> Sounds good. Back to your question, though, Chris. Um, with the what do we do with these vegetables um there's an 80 20 rule that i usually talk about with folks and that is that 80 percent of the post harvest quality meaning the quality after you take it off the plant 80 percent of that is decided by those pre-harvest factors so the genetics of the type of cultivar or plant you've grown, the environment, the weather, uh, the heat that we've had that year, and those cultural factors of how you maintain the plant, that 80% is going to determine how well it is when you harvest it. So the remaining 20%, that is what we can actually handle after we've harvested it off the vine. And so some people think of this as, wow, 80% is really, that's kind of stacked against me for these post-harvest odds. But it's actually that 20% is simply how you handle it, um, how you pick it, and how you store it. And so until we really determine how to control the weather or the amount of sunlight and heat and rain that a garden can get, that 20% can actually be one of those big percentage numbers for us. And so in that 20%, um, one of the main things that we're trying to do is to prevent dropping, bruising, and picking injuries associated to the fruits or vegetables that we pick. Harvest them during the cool part of the morning to limit any heat damage. Store similar type produce together at an optimal temperature and humidity so that they can last their longest. And the easiest way to do that in a refrigerator is to use those crisper drawers. And the last tip is to store ethylene producing produce away from ethylene sensitive produce. So use, using those two CRISPR drawers to really separate that produce. And so ethylene 
producing produce, some examples are apples, melons, tomatoes, which tomatoes you wouldn't put in the refrigerator, and keeping them away from things like peppers, green beans, cucumbers, and lettuce. Now, for those that are listening that might want to wonder what ethylene is, ethylene is a natural gaseous plant hormone that is responsible for ripening. So the easiest example to show what ethylene does is, all right, I'm going to pull, I'm going to pull the host. How many of you have ever picked green tomatoes? Yep, just did. Yeah. All right. So that's three. And how many of you have ever put your green tomatoes in a windowsill to let them ripen or put them in a brown paper bag with an apple? Yes, and accidentally left it in the bag too long. (laughs) (laughs) I've done the windowsill. Mine just go on the counter. All right. And so what happens is they sit there is they produce that gaseous ethylene, and that is what facilitates that color change in those tomatoes. Now, the apple one is really easy for people to get an idea of because you're putting the apple in the bag with the tomatoes, and it really does concentrate that ethylene, and so people can see those tomatoes change quicker than if they left them on the window or the counter. But unfortunately, I do have to tell people that they don't get the flavor that they would if they were left on the plant to ripen, which is usually that buzzkill moment for some folks. So Bruce, if ethylene is the thing that that hastens ripening, is is there a way for us to remove ethylene? Can we reverse that at all? Removing ethylene, not, so not really, because ethylene is that naturally produced um, plant hormone, but there are some things that we can do to limit the amount of ethylene that's come in contact with that produce. First thing is if you have an injured fruit or vegetable, let's say you dropped it, or maybe kids were helping you bring in groceries and they dropped the apple bag. Store those apples away from other produce for the simple reason that because when the fruit is damaged or the vegetable is damaged, they are going to produce more ethylene. So you can go through the bag and find the ones that are going to develop the bruise and take those out of the bag and put the rest in the fridge, or you can just do the easiest thing and quarantine the whole whole bag um, and maybe set them on the counter and let your family know that those are the ones that you need to eat first. The other thing that you can do if you have one of those ethylene-producing vegetables um, in the apple, melons, or tomatoes category, you can put a small fan on them and blow the ethylene away. This isn't going to concentrate the ethylene. You're actually bringing in air that has less ethylene in it and blowing it across. And the ethylene that is being produced can be essentially, this is a type of forced ventilation. So those are a couple of tricks that you can do to limit ethylene. But if you store your produce in the refrigerator, you might not be able to put a fan in there. So one thing you can do is on those crisper drawers in the refrigerator, they do have the slides where, well, on my refrigerator, it's got the circles that um, as you go more to the right, more of the circle fills up. That is opening the crisper drawer to let more of that humidity and gas out of the crisper drawer. And so if you have it closed to the left, like on mine, that will keep more of that humidity and ethylene confined in that drawer. So depending on what you're storing, you might need less humidity and ethylene or more humidity. Bruce, with all of your knowledge of storing vegetables 
Um, do you have anything that you like to store over the winter or prefer to store? And then also, what's your favorite way of like preservation and storing those vegetables? Good question, Katie. So I think out of all the things that I normally grow in the garden, the two things that I tend to plant more of um, currently are tomatoes and cucumbers. Like a lot of our listeners, I love tomatoes and I love trying the different types, textures, and flavors of the tomatoes. I also am one of those proponents of putting more color into your garden to put on your plate. So using the different colors of tomatoes to create a more colorful meal or the different colors of cucumbers as well. So those are two things that I have right now. I know in coming years, I'm going to be doing more strawberries and pineberries because I planted those this year. And for your follow-up question, Katie, on my favorite preservation method, I think freezing is one of the things I've done most. Tomatoes, I'm not one for jarring or canning my tomatoes. I usually follow the recommendations from our nutrition and wellness team on how to preserve our to preserve tomatoes. And that's usually the easiest for me because I like to, if I'm going to use those fresh produce tomatoes later on in the winter, I'm not sure what meal I'm going to use them for. I might use them for a chili or um, a pasta dish or um, a pizza sauce. So I'm not quite sure what I'm going to use them for, so I don't add the spices right then. I'll wait until I cook them to add those spices. And the other method that I usually use is for the cucumbers, I love doing refrigerator pickles. And I grew up, my grandma, I use her recipe. She made one of those five-gallon pickle jars full. And every time we went to grandma's, that was, that was the treat. That was the thing we all requested. So my refrigerator pickles don't stay around as long. So I don't worry about long-term preservation for those. Sounds like we need to come to your house, Bruce. I, I'm open. The The office and the school of Bruce is here. And I say school of Bruce because I've got three kids doing e-learning right now. E-learning is fun. I'll just, I'll just say that. <laughs> <laughs> Ken, so we've created enough stories that <laughs> I, I get that joke. <laughs> the trials and tribulations of e-learning. So for some of these things that we're, we're storing, like say for like pumpkins and stuff, or maybe some of that stuff that we're not necessarily processing, how long can we expect some of these different vegetables to last for in storage? All right. So that is a great question. And I will tell you that if you've ever taken a program of mine about vegetables, you know I talk about USDA Handbook 66. And this is about a 900-page document put together by the USDA on the commercial storage guidelines for fruits, vegetables, and florist and nursery crops. So this is my go-to book for how long we can store essentially horticultural crops. And I love, because I'm a hort nerd, I love to go through this when somebody asks me a question. So when we talk about melons, the USDA Handbook 66 divides up melons and squashes. So depending on what we're looking at, I know I'm growing watermelon right now in my garden, so I'll use that as, as an example. To store watermelons, You'll keep, try and keep them at a temperature between 50 to 60 degrees in an area that is 90% humidity. And if you do that, the 50 to 60 degrees and the 90% humidity is the optimum storage. Now, this is if you're only storing watermelon 
this would be the temperature you want to get it at to make it last the longest. Now, as a homeowner and a home gardener, I have a lot of things in my garden and I don't have a commercial storage unit to put each of these crops individually. So I'm going to do an average time of an average for temperature and humidity and store things that are like at similar temperatures and humidities to get less than the optimum storage, but it's going to be longer than if I just left it at room temperature. So for that watermelon, if we store it at the optimum of 50 to 60 degrees Fahrenheit, 90% humidity, a normal storage length will be two to three weeks. And so that is just leaving it in those conditions. If we wanted to extend that preservation, the method that is recommended to use for preserving watermelons would be freezing. So freezing watermelon, the water in it will turn to ice and those ice crystals will puncture the cell structure of the individual watermelon. So when you thaw your watermelon, you're not gonna have those perfect cubes that you put in there it's going to turn into a bag of mush. So this is when you think about, I'm gonna make a watermelon smoothie, or I'm going to just have this as watermelon juice. Or um, I was watching one of those food shows and somebody made a watermelon barbecue sauce. So it's, it's going to be, for at least the watermelon, that's going to be something that you can't really use in the same fresh method that you might when you're picking it right off the vine, but that extended preservation, you're gonna to have to think ahead with what you wanna do. I know we've got a question coming up about melons. So for winter squash, I'll use that one. Again, we're gonna be looking at 50 degrees Fahrenheit, 70 um, degrees humidity. And for that, you can get one to six months worth of storage life and that's keeping it whole at those conditions. Now, I know for myself, because I measured the temperature of my basement last winter, it does get about 50 degrees down there, and it's not very humid. So if I put a winter melon in my basement, I would get that one to six month storage in there. If you're looking at Extended preservation methods, this would be uh, something that you could can or you could freeze. All right, so I'm gonna pick spinach because um, spinach is one of those crops that you can plant now for a fall crop. And so if you're harvesting spinach this fall, it's recommended to keep spinach as close to 32 degrees Fahrenheit as possible in a 95 to 100% humidity environment. That will get you 10 to 14 days worth of shelf life. Um, some other, a couple of other things that can be held at that same temperature and humidity requirement, rhubarb, radishes, peas, parsnips, and then onions, as well as your garlic, kohlrabi, leeks, and lettuce. All of those can be kept at that 32 degree temperature, but if you think about what 32 degrees is, that's the freezing point. So these are things that you're putting in the freezer to store. Now, I know for myself, I put mine in the refrigerator. All of those that I just listed, I put them in the refrigerator and my refrigerator is not 32 degrees. So I'm getting a less optimum shelf life than what the, the recommendation guidelines is giving me. So if we go back to spinach, 10 to 14 days, I would say when I buy fresh spinach or I harvest my spinach, because I'm putting it at that higher temperature, I'm usually getting about a week for my spinach in my refrigerator. Say in my experience, are usually about a week or so with lettuce and spinach and you know, those leafy greens as well. 
in the refrigerator. And it also depends on if you leave it out on the counter after use. Because then you're sitting it at room temperature as well. So a lot of a lot of factors go into how long our produce lasts, but we can really do our best to extend it as we can. So Bruce, I, I kind of want to dive into homeowner questions right now because you keep mentioning things like, you know, commercial facilities and then utilizing your refrigerator. I feel like one of our questions kind of asks that or kind of pokes at that a little bit. So if you don't mind, um, I want to I want to get into this question from Knox County where they ask about harvesting and storing sweet potatoes. Now, they say that they, they went online and I had a phone call with them and their, their instructions, which was from a, a, an extension source, said to cure sweet potatoes at 90 degrees Fahrenheit at a 90% relative humidity. Uh, they said that seems impossible. They don't have any way to do that. So what can they do to cure sweet potatoes? Uh, and, and also once cured, how are they supposed to, to store them? So I guess they're kind of asking like, hey, I don't have like the commercial facility that's being referenced in this publication. What, what do I do at my house? So this is a great question. And I, I like this question because it really does demonstrate that not everything that we, we recommend we can do as homeowners. Um, so curing your sweet potatoes is very important. It helps develop that harder skin on the outside of the sweet potato that does make it last longer. So it is recommended according to the extension publication, and this does relate back to that USDA handbook 66 that I mentioned, that you're supposed to hold it for 10 days at those 90 degrees Fahrenheit, 90 degrees humidity. In the absence of the optimum facilities, so those commercial facilities, we can cure sweet potatoes between 65 to 70 degrees Fahrenheit, where the 90 degrees takes 10 days. Because we're lowering that temperature, it's going to take a longer period of time, so about two to three weeks. And um, to maintain the higher humidity level, it's recommended to stack storage crates or boxes of the sweet potatoes, cover them with either newspaper or a heavy cloth, and then package them into plastic bags that have some perforation or some holes in them that will allow us to keep the humidity higher, but the excess moisture will escape. So when you're thinking about this, um, think about an apple bag on how it's a plastic bag, but it has those holes punched in it. That's what you're creating with using those plastic bags. You're just poking some holes in them to allow any excess moisture that is going to be coming out of the sweet potato to escape through those holes. When I visited a sweet potato and onion grower many years ago, what he was doing is he was stacking those vegetable crates like you see at the big box stores or the grocery stores. He was stacking those up and then he had a big fan that he was using to force the air across them and he was just cooling them in an outdoor shed. So he was using the fan to cool the temperature down, but he was taking advantage of those higher heat days to help cure those sweet potatoes and onions. So once you have your sweet potato cured, then you want to move them to a dark location where the temperature is about 65, or excuse me, 55 to 60 degrees Fahrenheit and can maintain that during storage. So basements, root cellars, in some older houses, if you have one of those closets that stay dark and your house kind of stays cool, you could put them in the closet as well. Sweet potatoes are subject to chilling injury 
So you want to keep them out of the refrigerator. So that's one of the questions I've often got is, if I need to cool it down, can I do the refrigerator? Our refrigerators are usually set to cold, and it exposes them to light when we open the door. If you're doing something like an outdoor pit, I know some people have, when we think back on human preservation of produce, we've used outdoor pits. It's not recommended for sweet potatoes simply for the fact that it gets too damp and it encourages decay. Curing them at 65 to 75 degrees for two to three weeks in stacked boxes while they're in plastic bags with holes in them and then storing them 55 to 60 degrees Fahrenheit in a cool dark location. All right. Thank you, Bruce. And uh, when we put the call out on social media for questions on food preservation, we got a couple questions regarding fermenting and canning. And, and you know, folks, that's a little bit outside of uh, our wheelhouse. So I sat down with nutrition and wellness educator Kristen Bogdonas about uh, fermenting, pickling, and, and what to do about canning tomatoes now that we can't find any canning supplies out there. So let's have a listen to uh, Kristen and I's conversation. Well, we are joined by uh, a special guest appearance by uh, nutrition and wellness educator Kristen Bogdonas. And uh, Kristen is located, uh, she serves the the Henry, Mercer, Rock Island, and Stark counties here. And, and I kind of we think of that collectively sort of as like the, the Quad City area or region. Um, so Kristen, welcome to the show. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Well, we are happy to have you here. And we have gotten some questions that are a little bit outside of the wheelhouse of, of us here on the, the horticulture and local foods team uh, that's on the show. So uh, Kristen, would you mind kind of diving into some of these food preservation questions that we got uh, for, for today's episode. Absolutely. Wonderful. So our, our first question, it comes from Facebook. Um, so we don't really have a location or anything like that to give, but in terms of, of this question, they're asking about pickling and fermentation, and they want to know, are there certain vegetables that do not do well in the fridge after fermenting or, or pickling? Um, you know, Pretty much they're looking for uh, vegetables that they... They, they need to seal or can for shelf-stable over winter storage rather mm -hmm. than, than putting them in the refrigerator. That's a good question. So I'm going to give a little bit of information around fermentation so we're all on the same page. So when fermenting vegetables, we're relying on the process of lacto-fermentation. The lacto refers to lactic acid that's produced during the fermentation process by lactic acid-producing bacteria. And these are present on the surface of all fruits and vegetables. So in an anaerobic or oxygen-free environment, these bacteria convert sugars into lactic acid, which inhibits harmful bacteria and acts as a preservative. It's also what gives fermented foods their characteristic sour flavor, like that in sauerkraut. Most of your vegetables can successfully be fermented. However, I would not recommend fermenting leafy greens because they just get mushy in the end product. Um, so to ferment vegetables at home, you'll need a fermentation vessel and weights to keep your food submerged, in addition to good quality water and salt free from additives. Now canning is another way to preserve your garden's bounty, and pressure canning is the only approved method of canning low acid foods like vegetables at home. Pressure canners reach a temperature of 240 degrees Fahrenheit. It's the combination of a high temperature and a prolonged processing time that will destroy the bacteria and toxic bacterial spores produced by C. botulinum. Improperly canned foods can lead to botulism, which is why we always want to use a tested recipe when canning food at home. So if someone is wanting more information on safe home food pres preservation methods and tested recipes, um, they can visit our Nutrition and Wellness um, Team State Facebook page by going to go.illinois.edu slash nutritionwell. Here you can find recorded webinars and handouts on canning, freezing, drying, and fermenting. 
And a link to that will be included in um, the summary for today. And also, it's a good idea to get your pressure canner dial gauge tested yearly. And this is something that we can do as a team statewide. So in addition to our state um, web link, we'll also include a link to where you can get those dial gauges tested. Yes, it's common sight at our office to see a pressure canner sitting by the door yeah. in needing of, of testing and calibration. So uh, thank you, Kristen. And, and, and then also in terms of uh, shelf stable or pretty much after you pickle and ferment, are most of these products shelf stable? They usually don't have to be refrigerated. Is that correct? You'll want to refrigerate them. So after okay. your ferment is done fermenting, um, go ahead and store that in your refrigerator. And I try to eat things within six months, um, just because over time those helpful probiotics, the helpful bacteria that is in there will eventually die off. So although the food will still be safe to eat longer than that, um, I like to eat mine before that six-month period just to make sure I'm getting a good dose of the probiotics that are in there. Uh, yeah, it, unlike wine, the, the taste does not improve with that <laughs> over six-month period. So. Yeah. And we do have another question that came in over Facebook, and this person is um, kind of in a, in a jam here. So what they're asking about is they're looking for canning supplies, and 2020 being the year it is, they, they cannot find them. Uh, they have lots of tomatoes. They want to save them for eating in the winter. Uh, Kristen, are, are there any alternatives to canning tomatoes? Yeah, so our tomatoes, um, they can be dried as well, um, but I would definitely recommend freezing. It's a quick option for tomatoes, and it can be um, they can be frozen in a variety of forms, such as raw, juice, or stewed. And you can find some really good tips on the steps needed to freeze your tomatoes by visiting the National Center for Home Food Preservation website. You can also find a lot of helpful tips on how to freeze other fruits and vegetables as well, in addition to blanching times needed for vegetables. Um, if you don't have internet access, you can refer to the sixth edition of So Easy to Preserve. It's essentially the same information in book form. And um, I'll go ahead and I'll add a direct link to that Freezing Tomatoes webpage as well in the summary for today. And we will have those links below in the, the show notes, folks, including uh, links to the Facebook page. And, and Kristen, you and your, your team also uh, run a blog, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Um, we started a new team blog this year. It's called Live Well, Eat Well. And we cover a variety of different topic areas, including food preservation, food safety. We have kind of like a culinary spotlight section, um, healthy lifestyles, uh, chronic disease prevention and management. So it's not your typical nutrition blog. We try to cover as many um, topics as we can within our realm of expertise. So lots of good content in there. Fantastic. And Kristen Bogdonas, nutrition and wellness educator, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks again, Chris. Have a great day. Well, that was an interesting way to uh, distinguish between fermenting, pickling, canning, and what we are talking about here, folks, So, uh, in terms of food and vegetable storage uh, for over the winter. Now back to your questions here with Bruce. All right, so our next question comes from Greene County. Uh, this person has some garlic and onion, and they would like to know um, how they can kind of get those ready to store over the winter. All right, so this is a great question, and it does um, follow a few of the same steps that we would need to do with our sweet potatoes. So with our onions, we'll do onions first, and then we'll do garlic. Um, after harvesting, you want to dry or cure the onions in a warm, dry, well-ventilated location such as a shed or a garage. And so the easiest way to do this is to spread the onions in a single layer on a clean, dry surface. If you're going to be doing multiple amounts of onions and you might not have the horizontal space, you can stack them on stack them in shallow containers that have holes in them to allow for ventilation 
and what you want to do is cure the onions for two to three weeks until the onion tops and necks are thoroughly dry. And then the outer bulb scales begin to rustle like if you were to get an onion from the store, how they have that rustly paper layer on the outside of the onion. After the onions are properly cured, cut the tops off about an inch above the bulb. As the onions are topped, um, discard any of the onions that show signs of decay. And an alternate preparation method, um, which is one that I haven't seen done too often, is to leave the onion tops untrimmed and then braid the dry foliage together. So kind of like braiding garlic, uh, but you're using the tops instead. So once your onions are cured, you want to place them in a mesh old bag, um, an old nylon stocking, or a wire basket or a crate. It is important that the storage container allows air to circulate through the onions. Store the onions in a cool, moderately dry location. Storage temperature should be between 32 and 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Remember that 32 degrees Fahrenheit is freezing, so um, probably going to store those closer to the 40 degrees Fahrenheit. And the relative humidity should be between 65 and 70 percent. So I don't know about what most people's houses are like during the winter months, but my relative humidity is in that 65 degree range. Possible storage locations include basements, cellars, or garages. If you braided your onions, you'll want to hang them from the rafters or the ceiling. If you store your onions in a garage and it's unheated, you'll want to think about an alternate storage site because temperatures will drop below 32 degrees Fahrenheit. On to our garlic. So for garlic, you'll want to harvest when the foliage begins to dry. Usually this is about August to September. Carefully dig the bulbs up from the garden with a fork or a shovel. You'll want to dry the garlic in a warm, dry, well-ventilated location, very similar to the onions. Place the garlic on an elevated wire screen or a slotted tray to encourage drying. When the tops have dried, cut the dry foliage one inch above the bulbs. Also, trim off the roots and brush off any loose soil. Place the bulbs in a mesh bag or an open crate and store them in a cool 32 to 40 degree Fahrenheit dry, 65 to 70% relative humidity area. Garlic can be stored three to six months if it is dried and stored properly. If you braid your garlic, as I know many people do, a way to store those is to braid the foliage together um, after harvest, dry them, and then hang the braided garlic in a cool, dry location. We also have a question from Hancock County. So these people fell in love with butternut squash, and this year they grew a bunch. Is there a best practice for storing the butternut squash over the winter? Katie, that's a great question. We did talk a little bit about winter squash previously when we talked about uh, how long to store different vegetables. And so we do want to cure the winter squash with the exception of the acorn types of squash. And again, these are going to be ones that you want to try and get harvested and cure them at that higher temperature and higher humidity level. It's recommended to cure them at 80 to 85 degrees Fahrenheit in an 80 to 85 percent relative humidity environment. If you're not able to get those, you can again store them at the lower temperature like we did 
with the sweet potatoes where you're storing them at 65 to 75 degrees for a couple of weeks. And what this curing process actually does is it helps harden that squash skin and heal any of those cuts or scratches that might have accumulated during harvesting and carrying them in. Again, you don't want to harvest or don't want to cure acorn squash. After curing winter squash, like our butternut squash, you want to store the squash in a cool, dry, well-ventilated area. So cabinet, basement, cellar, um, and store them as close to 50 to 55 degrees Fahrenheit as you can get. Now, bringing us back to our ethylene discussion earlier, you do not want to store squash near apples, pears, or other ripening fruit. Ripening fruit release that ethylene gas, which shortens the storage life for squash. When they're properly stored, and cured. The storage lives of acorn, butternut, and Hubbard squash can be about five to eight weeks for the acorn squash, two to three months for the butternut squash, and five to six months for the for the Hubbard squash. And we have also gotten a listener question as a follow-up to a previous show, and I'm going to throw this out to everyone here, uh, and they're asking from McDonough County, uh, they they listened to one of our, our garden uh, vegetable gardening episodes earlier on, and so you know we're talking about what's happening this winter. They're thinking about next spring. So their question is, what can I do to prepare my garden for next year's growing season? Uh, what can I do to existing beds and new beds to be more successful? And they're wanting to know also, would it be beneficial to block out the weeds now or? worry about that next spring. So what do we think? Well, I guess I will jump in here. One thing that I would look at doing is adding compost and organic matter. Um, you can put that down this fall if you are removing your weeds and you're thinking about using a form of um, composted manure. I always recommend putting that on sooner rather than uh, later just to allow all the manure to break down so that you don't have any foodborne illness issues. Um, so usually three to six months is what I recommend, but if you do it longer, it's going to incorporate into the soil more, and that's before harvesting your first crop. So if you're doing a spring crop like radishes or lettuce that's going to be done quicker, you'll want to think about that as well. And then the other thing that I would just recommend is work on that plan for next year. You know where you've put your garden crops for this year, so work out your rotation over the winter. So another thing I would suggest doing is doing a soil test. Um, now is a good time of year to do that. That way if you need to do any um, kind of a big amendments trying to adjust the pH, something like that. Sometimes that can take a couple months to really work. Um, so if you do that soil test now, it gives you the winter um, and everything to kind of get all that stuff balanced out. Now, if you're going to be starting new garden beds, you know, kind of plan on where you want to put those. You could think about if you're putting it in turf, killing off that grass. It was me, you know, kill it. I would just leave that grass in place. That'll kind of help. Um, hold that soil in place over the winter so you don't have to worry about too much erosion um, or anything like that. You could think of doing a, putting a cover crop or something like that down um, in your garden, maybe one that winter kills or one that will survive through the spring. And then you would have to think about terminating that uh, in the spring before you would plant. Yeah, I like to look at what issues I saw this year, and um, now is a good time to fix them for next year. So I know with our garden this year, it was the first time that we had uh, worked the soil in a couple of years, and so we had a lot of clay soil. Uh, so that's where I'm going to do a soil sample as well as add some organic matter uh, to improve that soil quality. And hopefully we'll have some better yields next year. Another thing too is uh, we planted some sweet corn, which produces a lot of residue. Um, so I'm going to cut back some of that. Uh, one thing that we've done in the past, and I don't know if it's a best practice or not, but um, 
we just ran the the stocks over with our lawnmower uh, so that way we could put that residue back in our soil and that would add some organic matter as well. Um, if you did have any diseased plants, it would probably be a good idea to remove those plant residues from the garden as that can um, cause disease in future years as well. And I would just echo what everyone else has said. Uh, if you can get the, a handle on those weeds here in the fall, that would probably be good, a good idea just because as experience has shown and as I've seen with other uh, both home and commercial growers, those winter annual weeds that start germinating in the fall are becoming more and more troublesome for a lot of folks. So employ any weed control strategy you can. As was mentioned, uh, cover cropping is a good strategy, not only for weed control, but soil building, adding organic matter in the form of mulching with compost, wood chips, or if your garden uh, would allow it, tarping or some type of a ground cover fabric could help keep those weeds down. And Chris, if I may, I'll just jump back in here for a moment because I just remembered something when Katie was talking um, about a homeowner question I had uh, last week that got me thinking about planting your garden. So um, northern corn rootworm, the beetle, was affecting a homeowner's tomatoes, and this was because of living near a cornfield. So it was not only affecting her tomatoes, it was also interfering with her melons and cucumbers. So that is one other thing to think about is not only think about your microenvironment of your backyard, but also what your neighbors and if there are any fields in the area, what they might be growing for next year as well. So now might be a good time to have those conversations on what are you going to plant next year? Well, ladies and gentlemen, that was a lot of great information. The Good Growing Podcast is produced by Wendy Ferguson. It is edited by me, Chris Enroth. Uh, special thanks goes out to our uh, guest appearance here, uh, Kristen Bogdonis, uh, nutrition and wellness educator. And thank you so much, Bruce Black, horticulture educator and e-learning facilitator extraordinaire for being on the show today. Thank you, Chris. Ken and Katie, I always love being here on the Good Growing Podcast and avid listener when I'm not on. Well, folks, we are a, a listener-supported podcast in the terms that the, the people who provide the questions and the content for us are you. So please feel free to submit those questions. Again, our contact information is, as always, in the show notes below or get in touch with your local extension office to help you with your gardening conundrums. Ken and Katie, thank you very much for being with us again this week. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Bruce, for being on again. Wouldn't miss it, Ken. Well, listeners, it's been another Good Growing Podcast, and I want to thank you for doing what you do best, and that is listening. As always, folks, keep on growing.